This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, March 25th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. American public schools often censor controversial student speech that the Constitution protects. Catherine J. Ross is a professor of law at the George Washington University Law School. She's author of Lessons in Censorship, How Schools and Courts Subvert Students' First Amendment Rights. At the Cato Institute earlier this month, Ross discussed some of the various intrusions of schools into the lives and even minds of American young people. The heart of the problem is that too many principals and school board members don't know or don't understand the limits the Constitution places on their ability to control what students say, while others simply disregard the law because they don't like it. As I worked on this book, almost everybody I talked to informally said, I have a censorship story, either from their own days in school or from their children. And longtime teachers incredulously told me that they had no idea that students had First Amendment rights, and they asked where I had come up with such a creative notion. So, in proceeding, I have to begin by giving you a whirlwind tour of First Amendment doctrine as it applies to students. And then I'll turn to some stories that capture some of the particular contemporary dilemmas. The speech clause of the First Amendment is very concise. It says, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. As interpreted, this means that the government and anyone acting on behalf of the government may not silence speech because of its content or viewpoint. School districts and everyone who works for them, from principals to teachers to school bus drivers, are the government when we talk about students' freedom to speak. My research and my comments today are limited to public schools because the First Amendment doesn't apply to independent schools, whether secular or religious. They're not the government. The Supreme Court first took up the issue of student speech rights in 1943 in one of the earliest cases in which it actually upheld the speech rights of any individual. Barnett versus West Virginia involved elementary school students. They were Jehovah's Witnesses who were at risk of expulsion and being sent to a juvenile reformatory because they refused to say the Pledge of Allegiance on the ground that it offended their religion. But it was not uh, litigated or interpreted as a religion case. The consequences today of speaking up and being punished can also be dire. Many students enter the school-to-prison pipeline as a result of being suspended, expelled, or sent to an alternative school for troubled students after they engage in protected speech. So just like the Jehovah's Witnesses in 1943, the consequences are stark. Barnett held that people, including young students, could not be forced to say what was not in their minds a concept we today called the rule against compelled speech. The court emphasized the constitutional limits on the state's coercive powers, whether exercised by, quote, village tyrants or by the federal government. And it underscored that the First Amendment was designed to protect nonconformists of all stripes. The court particularly focused on schools because the case involved two elementary school girls said, because schools are educating the young for citizenship, they must scrupulously protect individual rights if we're not to strangle the free mind at its source and to teach youth to discount important principles of government as mere platitudes. 
Decades later, the court returned to student speech and began to carve out a special way of assessing claims that schools had illegally censored student expression. The first and iconic Supreme Court case in modern times, and here I'm just listing the cases. I don't expect you to retain all of them, but so you don't wonder when I say the names. The, the, I, the first modern case is Tinker versus Des Moines, decided in 1969 at the height of the Vietnam War. And it held that schools had violated the First Amendment by suspending students who wore black armbands to school in order to protest the war. The court took into account all the things society expects schools to accomplish, especially the importance of educating young for citizenship. And it crafted a special test that gave schools more leeway to restrain speech than the government has in the world at large. It announced that schools could not censor student expression unless authorities had a reason to anticipate that the speech could lead to material disruption of the school's function or collide with the rights of others. And in short, I'll refer to this as the material disruption test. As the court became more conservative, under every new chief justice, it gradually carved out exceptions to the material disruption test in three later cases. These gave schools more and more power to censor student speech, but did not extinguish student speech rights. Two of the exceptions gave the schools discretion to censor student expression that's lewd or speech that advocates the use of illegal substances, which you may recognize as the bong hits for Jesus case. The most important exception stems from Hazelwood versus Kalmeyer, a 1988 decision that created a special category of speech the court labeled school-sponsored. If speech is school-sponsored, it is treating, it's treated as if the school is speaking and the student is not, even though the speech originates with the student in such places as high school papers or literary magazines, but also much further. To be school-sponsored, the speech must appear to bear the school's imprimatur, or in a Justice Alito's words, to be the school's own speech so that a reasonable person would think the school had approved it. This reaches virtually all expression in student publications, performances, extracurricular activities, and more, stripping students of their voices. Schools try their best to avoid the material disruption standard because it's hard to satisfy. They claim that all cursing is lewd and therefore can be punished, even when students read aloud from classical literature or mutter to themselves thinking no one can hear them. Some schools have even begun to assert that what students say in the classroom and in written homework assignments handed in only to the teacher is school-sponsored expression, though no one in their right mind could think that the school had a chance to understand it and approve it before the students submitted it or uttered it. This approach severely limits the range of viewpoints in our classrooms, especially since teachers in many jurisdictions are not allowed to disagree with the text that the school board has selected, and there are many disputes about what viewpoints should be part of the official curriculum. I won't go into them, but think about disputes over how to teach such subjects as biology, including evolution, and courses on sex ed, and even American history and slavery. 
Let me briefly anticipate some common concerns about giving students too much freedom in school. Recognizing students' constitutional rights will not undermine education at all. There are two concerns. It's going to undermine education or it's going to put people at risk of their safety. Regarding the first concern, education, preserving the school's educational function is the essence of the material disruption test. So disruption it does not have to be tolerated. As for the second, safety, schools may always clamp down on speech that's illegal outside of school, like true threats, a narrow constitutional standard, very hard to satisfy, but also harassment, libel, and so forth. And more important, even speech that's protected outside of school by the Constitution that threatens violence or serious disruption, but it does not rise to the level of a true threat under constitutional law, may always be silenced by a school before it causes problems while officials contain the speaker and investigate whether there is cause for concern. Safety comes first. So that's the taxonomy. The principal or other official has to first figure out what kind of speech this is. The student's own that's not lewd, not pro-drug, or school-sponsored, and then within that taxonomy, uh, apply the correct test because each of these has a slight, slightly different formulation. I understand that it is really hard for teachers and principals in the spur of the moment, when they're worried, to try to understand and use a very complex set of standards. But they're also not adequately prepared to do that. Um, and so I provide a chart in the book, and this is the color version that can be ordered and placed in a principal's office, like the Heimlich Maneuver poster. What do I do now? We have a speech incident. Okay, this is going to remind me. If it's the student's own speech, I have to really slow down, and I can't silence it unless there's a threat of material disruption. Then I have to understand something about what this means. This isn't complete legal advice. If it's school-sponsored, I need to slow down. I can censor it, but only if I have a legitimate pedagogical reason. And the fact that someone finds it offensive or it might be controversial is not a legitimate reason under the First Amendment. But if it's lewd, pro-drug, or inciting violence, or inflammatory in some way, um, or defamatory, um, I can censor and punish it at my discretion. So now, how does this all work? Most of the speech that's at the core of contemporary debates, sexting, texting, online speech, bullying, and racist expression, all falls in the category of what I call pure student speech. It's governed by the material disruption test. Let me begin with creative artists who commonly get in trouble at school for fictional and graphic works. This is a poster that a high school senior named Sarah Bowman, who had never been in trouble, she was a good student, made during her lunch hour and posted in the corridor. Uh, about 15 minutes later, before any students had seen it, they were on the cafeteria, the janitor saw it and got really upset and took Sarah and the poster to the principal's office. It says, and I'll just capture it, who killed my dog? He was my best friend. Did you kill my dog? Did you kill my dog? If you don't tell me who killed my dog, I'll kill you. 
She had taken a course during the summer that taught her about conceptual art designed to capture deranged fictional people. And in the principal's office, she explained this. Principal believed her, but he still said, I have to suspend you for five days. Subsequently, the school board got involved. And the school board decided that she should be suspended for 81.5 days the rest of her senior year, and that she could not return to school unless a psychologist examined her and confirmed that she was mentally fit to be in school. She sued, and the court easily held that her rights had been violated and she was able to return to school and complete her senior year. They said once the principal interviewed her and understood what was going on, there was simply no reason to anticipate disruption, especially because even if other students might have been upset had they seen the poster, nobody saw it. So there was no cause for concern at all. In a similar case involving a work of fiction, uh, written fiction, uh, an appellate judge rebuked his fellow appellate panelists for allowing the school to punish the writer. He said, after today, students will have to hide their artwork. They've lost their speech rights. If someone finds their art disturbing, they can be punished. School officials may now, he said, subordinate students' freedom of expression to a policy of making high schools cozy places, like daycare centers, where no one may be made to feel uncomfortable by the knowledge that others have dark thoughts and all the art is of hearts and smiley faces. So if you're wondering about the connection between my book, which stops senior year of high school, and some of what's been going on in today's college campuses about by students who think that their comfort level is more important than the expressive rights of their peers, uh, this is part of a connection that I see, though I have not written about it, but it's part of the Cato Unbound discussion that John mentioned earlier. Um, and this brings us to disparaging speech addressed to groups or individuals. Many schools have speech codes. Those are simply school rules that prohibit students from disparaging people based on categories like race, ethnicity, sexual identity, and some go much further, talking also about physical appearance, like short people like me, um, or even something much harder to measure, values. Students have even been prevented from expressing views that undermine respect for a group, even though they weren't actively aiming their comments at the group or meaning to be disparaging. And I open by saying that schools censor both sides of a lot of debates. And many, many schools have wrongly prevented students from forming chapters of the Gay-Straight Alliance or similar groups, or from wearing t-shirts in which students proclaim their own sexual identity. But here's the flip side in this story. Roman Catholic Daniel Glowacki resisted a lesson in tolerance on Spirit Day a national day of recognition for LGBT teens who committed suicide. He told his teacher, I don't accept gays, it's against my religion. And the teacher told him to leave the room. There was no risk of disruption or only of competing ideas. A federal judge later commented that the teacher had modeled oppression 
and intolerance of student opinion. Other students agreed, because when Daniel Glowacki left the room, they asked, why doesn't he have free speech? The legal question is whether the Constitution permits students, I'm sorry, permits schools to regulate hurtful speech addressed to groups or individuals, in school or out of school. And the answer is the Constitution does not permit that. The US is very unusual. Justice Kagan, while she was still a law professor, discussed university hate speech codes and concluded that even an exceedingly narrow speech code aimed at discriminatory harassment cannot survive constitutional scrutiny in the United States. And Justice Alito, too, while he was on the Third Circuit, pointed out there's no right to be protected from hurtful words. Free speech principles simply conflict with efforts to reduce the harm that disparaging speech can cause. So this is the crowning paradox. Under our Constitution, a liberal secular democracy that strives to inculcate tolerance in our citizens and, more importantly, perhaps, a culture of mutual respect rather than simply tolerating each other, must tolerate the expression of intolerance. That means that the state can't use its coercive powers to punish speech that offends that goal. But the speech clause doesn't leave educators without any recourse. Schools can teach empathy. They can encourage peers to step up to support each other when someone is targeted with a hurtful slur or stereotype. And schools can modern, model constructive ways of disagreeing. Ideally, I would urge that respect for student speech rights provides a training ground for exercising rights responsibly for responding to hurtful speech with more and better speech, as the First Amendment generally uh, requires and looks for, and for learning how to have substantive conflicts about real issues without um, going too far and cutting off conversation, what I call learning liberty by living it. So I'm going to close with a third example which is the growing number of incidents in which schools reach out, claim they can punish what students have said off campus, usually online, um, and off school property. Schools increasingly claim the power to track and punish what students say 24-7. Some school districts have even hired retired law enforcement officers to keep track of their students' online communication from their own computers from their homes. Now, remember that the whole rationale for giving schools more power to restrict speech than the government has in the world at large is the special environment and purpose of the public schools on campus. But schools say they can violate speech that is fully protected by the Constitution outside of school if it violates the school's rules of decorum. And they say, if we do that, one of the school speech standard applies, not the normal strict scrutiny First Amendment test. Unfortunately, the schools didn't come up with this idea on their own because agencies of the federal government and many state statutes put this responsibility on schools in areas such as bullying. The law is unsettled, and it's likely to remain so because the Supreme Court just last week 
denied certiorari in a case called Bell versus Itawamba County School District, in which all 16 judges on the Fifth Circuit sitting in bank to review a panel decision uh, went further than any other appellate court in allowing schools to discipline a student for off-campus speech. And this was a senior, also with a good disciplinary record, as is true in many of these cases, African-American student who wrote and recorded a rap song and posted it on YouTube in which he accused two of the coaches at the school of sexually harassing four girls who had talked to him about the problem. And no one ever argued in court or even asserted outside of court that this was not true. No one said, including the the coaches, that this had never happened. But the school said this is harassment of school personnel, which the code doesn't allow. Now, these were gangster rap lyrics. They used the fictional conventions and the figurative violence that is always found in rap songs, as Killer Mike uh, indicated in a brief to the Supreme Court, urging them to grant cert, and the um, cert petition, uh, I'm sorry, the, the brief um, on the cert petition informs the court in case they might not know that Killer Mike himself has not actually ever killed anyone. Um, okay, so this leaves the law very different in different parts of the country about off-campus speech, meaning if it, a lot depends if you live in Texas or Mississippi or if you live in Washington, D.C. or Boston. Um, but it is well known from reading these cases, or very clear from these cases, that criticisms of school staff members are a very likely kind of speech to get a student in trouble. Schools don't like that. They reach out and they do serious punishments. Taylor Bell was sent to an alternative school for troubled kids, even though it was his first offense. Um, and similar things have happened to students who have posted so-called satirical adolescent humor, fake MySpace pages about their school principals, making fun of school administrators, complaining about a mean staff member or bad teachers like, I hate Ms. Phelps. But freedom of speech exists to protect dissidents, including those who criticize authorities in power. That is a core principle of democracy and one that should be honored in our school systems. The state's reach into the child's home in these cases also creates an express conflict between what educators think and parental liberty interests in deciding how to raise their children and what it's acceptable for their children to say and do and post from the home. Um, parents often punish the students um, in these cases, not just the off-campus speech cases, but the on-campus speech cases, if their speech was rude or crude, but they sue the school to get the coercive discipline of the state off their child's permanent record because that can have a profound impact on the child's life. And if I have time, I'll tell you one more story. Thank you. It's a great story. Uh, my last example. Uh, this was an on-campus inquisition into a private online conversation between two middle school students from their homes in rural Minnewaska, Minnesota. 
The conversation had something to do with sex. We never learned its actual content. It was conducted on the internet, off school grounds, and outside school hours. When school officials learned about it from the family of the boy who initiated the conversation, they went after the girl who responded to his invitation to talk about sex. And they pulled her out of class and opened her laptop and demanded her IDs and passwords for all her accounts. They didn't call her mother. They interrogated her with the police present. They opened all her accounts. She was sobbing. And uh, they found a Facebook sex quiz, which she said, I thought it was fun and funny. And they condemned her for doing this online quiz, as well as for her personal correspondence. It was a warrantless search without any grounds at all. And um, when the mother filed a lawsuit saying they had violated her daughter's First and Fourth Amendment rights, even though they had not actually punished her, uh, it became clear where the judge was going, and the case settled for $70,000. Uh, we've learned since this episode from the Supreme Court that personal computers and phones hold everything that is in a person's mind. That was not as clear at the time, but it is clear now. These intrusions into off-campus expression that the First Amendment protects teach young people the opposite lesson of the lesson Justice Jackson in Barnett said we should be teaching. They teach students to dismiss as meaningless the rights we tell them they have. They teach young people that there's no place to hide from an authoritarian government whose officials are immune from criticism undermining every core principle of our liberal democratic state. Catherine J. Ross is author of Lessons in Censorship, How Schools and Courts Subvert Students' First Amendment Rights. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.